0: So these are keys. I've I've been teaching a series called Five Keys. I wrote a book about it. We have some of these in the lobby if you're interested in in getting them. And it's a book on a study on how to study. How to study God's word because uh, there's a lot of teaching, as you know, that's out there. And not all of it is healthy. Not all of it is sound. Not all of it is helpful. And so we wanted to teach our people how to rightly divide the word of God. And um, so we have five keys that represent five ways to handle god's word with integrity in a way that makes it safe and sound you can you can run any teaching you hear through these five keys and decide whether to keep it or throw it throw it over the fence the first key is everything that god teaches everything that's in the bible is always by two or three witnesses you can always find two or three verses that say the exact same thing most Legalism, most faults or flaky teaching that I've heard, is based on one verse. Oftentimes it's one obscure verse in the Old Testament that could mean something altogether different. We've taken that one verse and made a major doctrine out of it. That's not allowed. Uh, that's not the way we should handle the Word of God. And so what, what he laid down as a rule for prophecy or for... Um, the Bible or even, even resolving problems, there has to be two or three witnesses. That's why there's Matthew, Mark, and Luke all seeing and saying the same thing. That's in there because God says every word that he says has to be established by two or three witnesses. And often a big thing he'll establish with even four witnesses, and that's why we have the Gospel of John as well. And the next basic rule is you look at the context, read around it. Oftentimes what people do is they'll find a a phrase or a a line that says what they believe and they take it and they take it out of context and they make it say something that when you read the context, that's not what it's saying. And that happens a lot. And so we have to read it and and grasp the concept around it, the context. And the next is you don't have to know Hebrew and Greek. Uh, I don't know. I don't know any. But all these years, I've studied what's called a Strong's Concordance. It's a dictionary of Greek and Hebrew words. Very easy tool to use, and you can look at it. And a lot of things get twisted or get misunderstood because we use an English word that means one thing, but when you look it up in the, in the Bible, it means something else. So you need to know a little bit about the Hebrew and Greek and uh, lots of misunderstandings because we don't know the original language. Another key, smaller one, but important one, is, is you have to ask yourself, was this what the author was intending? Is that he's writing to a specific audience about a specific thing? So often we'll take something that he says and we bring it, uh, not just out of context, but the application, it, it just couldn't be what the author could have meant. It's just not possible. Uh, for example, there's things that are taught about salvation and we find out that what Paul is talking about, living by faith, uh, couldn't be, could, doesn't match what we're teaching. And so we have to ask, is this what the author intended? And the final key, it's small, but it's important, is sometimes we teach that we have to... Um, we have to understand something outside the Bible to interpret the Bible. Well, the best way to interpret the Bible is to use the Bible. There's other places where it says it. If you want to understand anything in the New Testament, you have to understand the Old Testament. And um, one example is in, you've heard it taught, where uh, the reason women should be veiled is because the prostitutes at Corinth, there's thousands of them, and they're unveiled, and they don't want the Christians to look like prostitutes. That And that's not found in the Bible, that's found somewhere in some dusty cultural book on the, on the life and times of Corinth, except I've never found it, I've never seen it. I've heard people say, well, it's out there, there's a book uh, somewhere, there's a book. Well, the guy who's down in Ecuador, the guy that's in the, in the jungle of India who doesn't have access to that library, how is he ever going to know that, what that verse means? He doesn't have access to that book. So it's not fair that we would have to go outside the Bible to understand the Bible. If you don't understand the book of Revelation, read the whole book of Revelation, and soon you'll understand how to interpret the book of Revelation. It does a good job right within itself. You don't have to go outside the Bible. When we go outside the Bible to illustrate something, that's one thing. It might shed a little light on it, but you can't base a theology. You can't base a major truth and say, well, you have to know something about Something that happened in 1642 in order to understand the Bible. It just doesn't work that way. The Bible is the best commentary on the Bible. So let's go to Second Timothy chapter 2. Second Timothy chapter 2. By the way, uh, all these messages are recorded morning and evening. And when I'm not here, whoever's teaching, they're recorded. And they're on, they're on websites where you can go that have podcasts. So you can listen to it in your truck. You can catch up with messages. You can listen to it on the job site. You can listen to it while you're cleaning the house. There's house. Uh, it's re- being recorded. So we have these podcasts. You're welcome to go get them. 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 15 says, Be diligent to present yourself approved to God. A workman who does not need to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. Then he goes on and says, But shun profane and idle babblings, for they will increase to more ungodliness. What you believe affects your behavior. In other words, what you believe, doctrinally, is really important because that affects how you act. And so he said, there's stuff you should shun. You should actually shun. You don't have to shun people you have to shun ideas and theology and he's talking about rightly dividing the word of god see the word of god is so big but it's so masterfully put together it's put together by the creator same one who created a snowflake and created uh, microorganisms that are so powerfully interrelated did the same thing with the bible the bible is perfect and so it really fits together perfect so when you take a piece out of the, out of it and you you take it out and you misuse it you make it say something it was never intended to say you're not rightly dividing the word of god but the reason we need to divide the word of god it's so big it's so vast it's so amazing but in order to create a meal we have to cut it down in bite-sized portions we have to cut it down for people and say this is what this is saying and so we have to pastors have to rightly divide the word of god that's what he's writing to timothy timothy's the pastor uh, the church at Ephesus, who's actually the apostle there after Paul. And so he's he's telling him, you need to be a workman, approved, uh, present yourself approved of God, a worker who does not need to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth, and that's what we're doing. These five keys that we're teaching, you should apply it to everything that you hear, every teaching that comes down the pike, including my own. Every sermon should have... Numerous verses that explain, especially the major points that explains about handling God's word and, and whatever we're teaching, it has to be supported by two or three witnesses. In 1 Timothy, if you want to go back a couple pages, 1 Timothy chapter 5, he's talking about, in verse 17, about elders, so that's pastors. Uh, The word pastor is only used one time in the New Testament. When he's talking about pastors of churches, he uses the word elders. Let the elders who rule well, and that has to do with being in leadership, be counted worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in the word and doctrine. It goes on and says some other things about their support. But the word well here is an integrity word. It's, it's, it has to do with honesty, handling the word of God honestly. There's a lot of dishonest handling of the word of God where you say it says this or the Greek says this and it doesn't. And that's where we get into trouble. But he's saying that there's we have to lead, we have to govern with integrity, with honesty. And uh, that's the issue there's lots of different ways to see scripture you can look at this, two people can look at the same verse and see something different but it's an integrity issue it really has to do with the honesty of our heart and even jesus when he was teaching about the parable of the sower he talked about the seed going in in good and honest soil so it's not just me that has to have integrity in handling the word of god you the hearer have to have integrity to hear the word of god otherwise it won't grow so integrity is the big issue people say well there's lots of different ways to lead a church and there are there really are but integrity is the thing that is the golden thread that links it all together we have to handle the word of God honestly we have to lead the church honestly we have to deal with God's word honestly when my grandfather died I was about 15 when he died and so my grandmother came to live with us and she was a hillbilly. And uh, she was just a little tiny woman. She reminded us of Granny on the Beverly Hillbillies, except she was nice. She was sweet. She was a little sweetheart. But her folk ways, she had all folk remedies. She had plants that would cure this and cure that. She had all different kinds of unusual old hillbilly kinds of habits. And we were living in the city, and she came to live with us. And so we built her a little room on little apartment on the side of our house, and um, she'd come to live with us. I love grandma, and she was wonderful, and so uh, I'd go spend time with her and talk with her. She's out there by herself, but I remember one day I was out there just visiting with her, and I loved to hear her stories and listen to the way she talked. It was so interesting, but We're working on a puzzle and that's how she passed her time. She had a big jigsaw puzzle on the table in front of her. And we're just talking and she's reminiscing and working on the puzzle and snapping pieces in place. And then she shocked me because she's just talking and laying the pieces. She reaches into her her apron underneath the table and brings out a little pair of scissors and cuts a piece of the puzzle and then pounds it into place. Well, that puzzle, that piece wasn't intended to go in that hole. She cut it to make it fit. And I couldn't quite believe my eyes because I'd never seen anyone do this before. I'd never seen anyone handle pieces of a puzzle. And we're talking, and I I can't quite believe I just saw what I saw. And we're talking away, and all of a sudden she reaches under the table, pulls out her scissors, cuts another little piece, pounds it into place. And I remember saying, Grandma, you're going to have pieces left over at the end that won't fit in anywhere. God's word is so intricate, so profoundly put together, that if you misuse verses, misapply verses, take them and make them say something that they were never intended to say, you're going to have pieces left over that don't fit. You're going to have, there's going to be holes in your theology that aren't going to make sense. There's lots of examples of that, and I, I, I'm hoping to get into a thing where we'll, we'll teach on the head covering, we'll teach on hair, and we'll teach on hats, and we'll teach on that whole thing from 1 Corinthians um, 11, and, and women being silent in church, because we're missing a huge, important concept, because we've misunderstood, we've trimmed those pieces to make them say things that they were never intended to say, and we'll teach on that this summer. We'll go through that and we'll apply the five keys to how that's commonly taught. And what it does, there's stuff that men should be doing that they're not doing. They're not being the leaders of their home the way they should be because we've misapplied those verses. Grandma had pieces left over. She cut it and she pounded them in place. When you see a pastor pounding the pulpit, I'm wondering if he's not pounding a puzzle piece in the place, making this, emphatically saying, this is what we're to believe Think about it next time you see someone pound the pulpit. When you go to Luke chapter 8, if you do that with me, Luke chapter 8. Actually, uh, go to Mark chapter 8, Luke chapter 12. Why don't we do that? Mark chapter 8 and Luke chapter 12. This is interesting. I just happened to be reading this my devotions this week. Mark chapter 8, verse 15. Jesus is talking to the disciples. They forgot bread. They're in a boat. They're going to the other side. Jesus is sitting back in the boat. And then he charged them. He said, Take heed. Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. Herod's government, that's King King Herod. And the Pharisees are the denominational leaders of their day, so to speak. They're the ones who were the the people of the word. They were the keepers of the book. And he says, now, you need... And so he's actually speaking out loud, saying there's stuff that's being taught. There's stuff that is coming down from leadership and is coming down from, from the religious part of our culture. And he says, beware of the leaven coming from these two groups. And they're looking at each other. They didn't quite get what he was saying. They're thinking bread. They're thinking we forgot bread, we should have brought bread, and they're starting to beat each other up. And he goes on and, and he addresses that. But hold that thought. Beware. This is Jesus actually saying, there's stuff, there's stuff being taught in our circles, in our, in our religious system, and also our, our government system that's leaven. Now hold that. And let's go to Luke's account. And Luke is writing in chapter 12. Sometimes people feel critical about criticizing the teaching of other people, but Jesus is doing it. And watch what he says. He He says there are innumerable people gathered together. They trampled upon one another. Then Jesus began to say to his disciples, first of all, but where are the leaven of the Pharisees? He's saying it, which is hypocrisy. For there's nothing covered that will not be revealed, nor hidden which should not be known. And he's talking about leaven again. And, and when you run your references on leaven, he, he was the one that said, uh, or actually Paul said, a little leaven. A little leaven will permeate and leaven the whole lump. It's something that spreads. It's something that, that can go right through. And he's talking about yeast, uh, the impact of yeast. He called it leaven. And, and there's teaching that will, that will go through a whole church. There's teaching that will go through a whole family, go through a whole generation, just like yeast will. It'll, it'll influence everything. And he said, now, there's there's leaven in our culture. There's leaven that's coming down, so to speak, denominationally through the Pharisees and also also through Herod. He said, you need to be aware of it. The reason is because it has such an impact. And he said, now, leaven is hypocrisy. Hypocrisy is being one way on the inside and another way on the outside. It's being two-faced hypocrisy is an acting term where they would take a mask and the mask would have a frown on it and then the person would speak behind the mask so there's a person a real person behind the mask and the mask is portraying something on the outside or they'd flip it over and it'd have a smiley face or it'd have a sad face depending on what they're acting and it was a it was a street term for acting because they're one way on the Inside, but in another way, on the outside, he says that's the way the religious people are. They're not being genuine. They're not, in fact, it's an integrity thing. Integrity means being whole. Integrity is you're the same way on the outside as you are on the inside. There's no acting. There's no loving. We need to be so honest that we can be transparent that we're the same way on the inside as we are on the outside. And we need to handle the word of God honestly. Paul wrote to the to Thessalonians, he says, notice how we were among you, how honest we were. We weren't after your money. We weren't after your stuff. We weren't wanting control of you. We, we were like a, a mother uh, who was careful to nurse their baby. We, we cared for you. He actually showed them and told them. He says, we're, we're honest. We're not deceitful men who handle the word of God dishonestly trying to control you, trying to manipulate you. Jesus actually spoke against people who were dishonest. They are hypocrites in how they're handling the Word of God. That's my issue, I think, is, is there's stuff that's being taught in our circles, in the body of Christ, in our circles where we are, that's dishonest. It's not handling the Word of God honestly. Let me just give you a little illustration. And this is going to take a few minutes. You have to bear with me on this. This is something I, that came to me in my own studies, and I thought I'll share it here and see if it's helpful for you. Go with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. And, and this is a, a very unusual exercise. And so uh, let me see if I can make sense out of this. What I felt to do one time when I was studying is there's all, these, all this teaching out there, lots of teaching in the body of Christ that to me doesn't really seem biblical or doesn't seem to really make sense. And, and I got looking at the, the, the church at Corinth, and I had studied this church a, an awful lot, and I, and I saw where Paul listed all the problems that were going on in church at Corinth. He got it from a person called Chloe. Chloe had a church meeting in her house, and wrote Paul and said, "Here's the stuff that's happening in church. You need to be aware of it." And, there's not, and he didn't say there's anything wrong with Chloe saying that. But Paul writes a letter, chapter or First Corinthians one, to address the problems in the church, and and then we're gonna we're gonna go through and see what the problems were. Now the next thing we're gonna do is take some modern teaching to see if it applies uh, in terms of solutions. So in 1 Corinthians chapter one. Uh, starting in verse 10, he describes that there's divisions and contentions among them. So the church is split. The church is divided. And then in chapter 1, verses 11 and 12, he says there's some denominational pride. Some of you are saying, I'm with, I'm with uh, Apollos. And some said, I'm with Paul. And others said, I'm with Cephas. And some of the super spiritual people were saying, I'm only with Jesus. I'm, I, I don't listen to men. I only follow Jesus. And then in chapter 2, verse 1, there are people who elevated human wisdom, logic, above spiritual wisdom. Then in chapter 3, verse 5, if you're tracking, he said they were making carnal comparisons among themselves. Chapter 5, verse 1, he says there's sexual immorality in your midst, and the leaders have failed to address it. They've actually. They've actually laughed at it. They haven't really stepped up to deal with this. There's sexual immoralities. It's not even named among the Gentiles. Stuff that was happening in church that the world wasn't even doing. He says, you didn't handle that very well. Chapter 6, they're actually the Corinthians were taking each other to court. They are actually going to a Gentile judge with church problems and saying they believe this and we don't believe that and they're doing this and they're going to court among the Gentiles, and Paul can't believe that they're doing that. Chapter 6, verse 19, some of them are still using prostitutes, still going to prostitutes. It's astounding. Chapter 7, beginning in verse 1, we see the breakdown of marriages, and there's a stress on the church because the marriages aren't doing well. And then there's a stress on, on the single people because there, there's pressure being put on them that creates stress, Chapter 7. Chapter 8, some of them are puffed up. Uh, they're, they're puffed up in their knowledge. They have knowledge that f- they feel superior to other people. And it led to legalism. Chapter 8, verse 1. Chapter 9, they tended to be critical or fault-finding of leadership, of those in authority. Chapter 10, verse 1, uh, he need to remind them that Like the children of Israel, they lived for their own pleasure. They were pleasure-seeking, charismatic Christians. Chapter 10, verse 21. Some of them were using the cup of blessing, but at the same time, worshiping demons. They were still going to the temple and still participating in temple worship. At the same time that they're going to the meeting house and have a communion, Paul couldn't believe that they were still doing that. Chapter 11, verse 1, there are husbands who are neglecting their rightful responsibilities, their roles, and the wives were dominating the husbands. Chapter 11, verse 17, they were taking communion in a religious way, but at the same time remaining divided and treating each other poorly, treating the poor disgracefully, despising the church. They were under such judgment that some were... Some were weak, some were sick, and some were dying prematurely. Christians, he said, look among you and say, how many have died prematurely? They're under a judgment of God. Chapter 12, verse 1, they're gifted, but they're ignorant of spiritual things. Chapter 13, they're spiritually motivated by selfishness rather than doing the gifts for the benefit of others. Chapter 14, they're going to spiritual, spiritual extremes, causing confusion and bringing reproach upon the church. Chapter 15, it was startling that false teaching had taken hold of them to such an extent some of them didn't believe in the resurrection of Jesus anymore. Chapter 15. Then 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 1, Paul had to correct them uh, because uh, they resisted his reproof and his authority in writing the first book of Cor- uh, First Corinthians, they're also being unequally yoked with unbelievers. Okay, so so that's the problem. How would you like to go to a church like that? First of all, before we go any further, are you grateful for our church that we? I mean, we have problems, but we don't have a lot of the stuff that they're dealing with. It's just aren't you just a sigh of relief that we're doing pretty good? We're we're in pretty good shape. Uh, this, is, this is a, a first-century church that Paul is the founder of. They were a wreck. They had all kinds of issues going on in that church. So we see that this church has problems. Now let's look at some ways to address these problems and see if this makes sense. This is modern teaching. It's pretty prevalent. Uh, we see it everywhere. Maybe the reason they had so many problems at Corinth, at Corinth is they were not affirmed by their fathers when they were young or by their pastors now. Maybe they didn't go through deliverance from their pagan past when they were first born again. Maybe that's the reason there were so many problems at Corinth. Maybe they needed, all they needed to do was have more faith, simply call wholeness into existence. I've heard that taught. Maybe they're abused or neglected by their parents. Maybe it's proof that they were never homeschooled. Maybe nobody, nobody taught them how to bind and loose in terms of spiritual warfare. Maybe they didn't know the name of the big demon over that whole region, that peninsula, and that's the reason they had so many problems in their church. They, they just didn't know the name of that demon and bring it down. Maybe they were not spanked enough as children, or maybe they were spanked too much. It's hard to know. Maybe they weren't waving the right color banner or they're waving the banner at the wrong time because there's people who say that you can wave a white banner and it releases the Holy Spirit and you wave a red banner and it stops the devil. They didn't know that. Maybe they needed to shout and stomp on the devil's neck or clap their hands as an act of warfare. Maybe they needed someone to come in and say, I break all the curses that have been put on you from previous generations. That would solve it. Maybe they had some ancestor who was part of the Masonic Lodge. Of course, we know that the Masons go back to the time of Solomon, so it must have been a problem in that church. Maybe they just needed to do some spiritual mapping over the area find out that those meeting houses were built upon places where they had worshiped idols or where some injustice had taken place in previous times. Maybe it was that spirit of Jezebel or Ahab, and it just needed to be kicked out. Maybe they needed to go back in their past and renounce every evil thing that they'd ever done wrong. Maybe they needed a triple anointing so they could have the breakthrough that they needed. Perhaps they just needed to sew into someone's ministry. That would solve it. Perhaps they needed to kneel on blessed prayer mats and begin wearing prayer shawls. Maybe they just didn't have someone who really knew how to b- blow the shofar at the beginning of the meeting. That's why there are so many problems at Corinth. Corinth. Maybe they needed to get bold and march around the church and pleading the blood and laying hands on the walls. That would have solved everything, perhaps. Perhaps they just needed an old-fashioned revival, nothing, like a, uh, nothing that a, wooden, uh, a week of meetings wouldn't cure, especially with the right evangelist. Maybe the reason they didn't have revival is because their pastors did not get together once a week to pray. Maybe they didn't understand all those hidden codes that Paul must have put in his letters. Maybe their fathers had sinned, and they needed to acknowledge them before they could really come free from the curse that they're under. Maybe they just needed more accountability, perhaps a men's meeting, perhaps a big rally. Maybe they just needed to go on a short-term mission trip. That changes everything. Perhaps they just needed to take a test and find out what their motivational gifts really were. Maybe they needed to focus on the fruit of the spirit rather than the gifts of the spirit. Perhaps there was a misplaced emphasis on seeking the gift rather than the giver. Maybe they just needed one of those new apostolic alignments. Maybe they needed more oat bran in their diet perhaps fasting, desserts, taking the Daniel plan. Actually, the problem was they needed t-shirts and wristbands that would say, what would Jesus do? And that would remind them of how to behave differently. They're all modern teaching. That's all stuff that we hear. It's commonly taught. You go to conferences. It's all stuff that that we're hearing all the time as a cure-all or a real problem solver, except not one of them is mentioned in the letter to the Corinthians. Isn't it amazing that they're completely omitted from this church with all these serious problems? But it leaves me wondering, what did Paul really teach that we're not teaching today? Here's what Paul wrote to them. He confronted them about their true condition. They didn't need to be affirmed. They needed their deeds to be exposed by the Spirit of truth, by a godly spiritual father. He spent a lot of time pointing out how carnal they were, and they were acting as mere men, not as Christ ones. He counteracted their ignorance with understanding, instructed them just like children even though they thought they were beyond that. He brought them back to the original purpose of communion, to deal with their conflicts and their cliques within their divided body. He laid out God's order for the family, teaching on headship and teaching uh, that today is uh, so undertaught and it is has uh, been misrepresented and misapplied. He called for order and boundaries to be set on the spiritual gifts and how they'd be used. He put limitations on what they would do in the name of the Holy Spirit. He taught them that edification for the whole church was more important than edification of the individual believer. And that how other unbelievers, looking at their meetings, what they saw and that that mattered. He took time to show them that the The depths of their selfishness by redefining what love really looks like, and that that has to be the motivation for everything that we do. He faced down immorality in the church with church discipline, no matter how unpopular it was. He reminded them that they should uh, be devoted to only one, the one who purchased them. He pointed out the folly of their false doctrine and counter their false teachers with right doctrine. He believed that hurting their feelings was worth the risk. It would keep them from being ruined spiritually. He told them that no matter how many teachers came to town, there was only one spiritual father who had God-given authority to speak into their lives. He taught them that by living a separated life, it allowed God to walk in their midst. It's interesting, those things, we don't hear very much about today, or it's almost to a point where we're not willing to tolerate it. We can hardly bear those kinds of remedies. If you tell people the truth about their true condition and forbid them from doing certain things, they just go to a church down the street, there's nothing you can do about it. We can't hardly bear real solutions, but we're willing to tolerate things that we can't even find in the Bible. And we're, we're using them as a cure-all for the problems in our churches today. But Paul didn't. Where I'd like to go next over these next couple weeks, if you could be here for it, it would be important. There's some surprising things that Jesus taught and believed that we don't teach today. He wrote seven letters to seven churches addressing the problems in those churches and the things that he taught, we don't either teach or, or hardly even believe today. We've gotten so far away from what's lying on the surface of Scripture that is a real solution to our problems because we've gravitated to, to uh, idle babbling and things that really don't make sense and things that sound, sound right, but they're just not in the Bible. They're just not... Uh, they're, they're hidden teaching that we make something, say something out of a little verse, and we're willing to take that as a cure-all, or major solution to our problems. Meanwhile, there's real Bible solutions laying right on the surface of Scripture, and we're looking past them for some intricate, complicated little morsel of teaching that really isn't worth spending time on. I'm not saying you're doing that. I'm saying that is a chronic problem in the body of Christ. But my responsibility as the pastor is to empower you to be able to say no to teaching, be able to say, I'm not embracing that. I'm not accepting that. I'm not gonna reteach that. I'm not gonna, I'm gonna say no to that because I understand how to rightly divide the word of truth. I know how to break it down for me and for my family. That's something that you have power to do. That's something you have a responsibility to do. And you need to be reminded of it. You need to be taught that here's some ways that you can interpret any teaching that comes down, whether it comes from me or through a radio broadcast or at a conference. You can, you can run any teaching through these five simple tools and decide what's, what's going to be feeding your family because that'll affect the health of your home. It'll affect the health of your marriage. It'll affect the health of, of, of your church as well. There's some stuff that comes down the pike. There's always stuff that's coming. There's stuff that people get excited about, and it's hard for us to get on board with it right away. We want to see the fruit of it. We want to see what it produces. So there's stuff that you may want us to embrace or want us to teach, and we just say, well, let's just wait and see what this this does. We're we're charismatic, but we're conservative enough to ask, where is it in the Bible? (laughs) Show Show me the fruit of this thing. Forgive us if we're slow on it. We just want to make sure that it's healthy. We want to see what it produces in the lives of our people. Is that okay? You have tools. You just have to use them. You have authority. You just have to use it. You don't have to believe everything that's out there. You shouldn't believe everything that's out there. Some of it is just not honestly handling the word of God with, with, with honesty, with integrity. And we want you to be able to do that. Amen? Father, we thank you for your word. It's matchless. It's wonderful. There's nothing. There's no book. There's no teacher. There's there's nothing like your word. Help us to be people of your word who know how to rightly divide it, who know how to handle it in a way that wouldn't cause us to be ashamed, in a way that would please you. Lord, your word is a lamp unto our feet. Without it, we can't figure anything out. We can't find our way. Lord, you honor your word even above your name, and we want to honor your word. Lord, we've all come out of stuff. We've all come out of muddy waters. We've all come out of teaching that hasn't been altogether helpful. Father, show us how to be bold. Show us how how to really, truly handle your word with integrity. Teach us, and we'll teach others. We thank you for this reminder today. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.